from Real FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 42. We are coming to you from the past into the present about the future. It's April 18th, 2023 when we release this, but we're recording it on April 4th, 2023. That's our secret. Don't tell anybody. I am your master of ceremonies and a time traveler, I guess, Jason Snell. And with me, as always, my fellow time traveler, our director of strategy and the director of strategy at Parrot Analytics, Julia Alexander. Hi, Julia. Let's pretend like it's mid-April. Hey, Jason. How How, how is this weather going? It's amazing, isn't it? Are you enjoying your vacation? <laughs> I I am hopefully at this point enjoying my vacation. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's good. It's good to hear. I did pre-records and stuff when I went on vacation too, and it was pretty funny. It's like, oh, I thought Jason was gone. He is gone. It's a lie. Anyway, uh, we're recording an episode. Our next episode, I'm going to get a guest star of some sort or other uh, because Julia is going to be gone until our first episode in May. But uh, for this episode, we recorded in advance. We got a lot of letters and I have one topic for you that we didn't get to last time that I wanted to bring up. And it is based on a tweet uh, from uh, Great Catsby. That's Brandon Katz. It is the long libraries and high rewatchability of sitcoms is known by now. Sitcom is among the three subgenres with the highest in-genre affinity, meaning it's most likely to send viewers to similar content. So superhero shows, procedurals, that's your law and order, Julia, and mm-hmm. sitcoms. And uh, I, uh, so you tweeted about it and you talked about how they're lower budget, they're higher engagement. There's a lot of things that comedies provide and you listed them here and, and, and uh, we got the great uh, Catsby himself to tell us about, um, so Brandon t- talked about the, the three bars that are at the top there, superheroes, yeah, procedurals make sense and, and, and comedies. My question for you is this, with all of this going for comedies, why does it feel like streaming is really bad at comedies, right? Like, why mm. does it feel like, and I know we've touched on this before, we've been doing this a while now, but I thought this might be a good time to bring it back, which is, I feel like c- comedies do really well on streaming, but streaming it, platforms are generally bad at developing comedies, especially since a lot of the sitcom stories that you hear about succeeding on on streaming are network broadcasts. They're often with lots and lots of episodes in a catalog, whether it's something older like Friends or slightly newer like New Girl. Um, and it is I just it's one of my favorite subjects in the whole streaming world is the conundrum of comedies doing really well on streaming, but being very, very, very hard to develop successfully for streaming. Yeah, it's one of my favorite conversations, too, and, and things to think about, because, you know, theoretically, all the pieces are there, right? The people who work at Netflix, Apple, Amazon, Hulu, they are entertainment executives. They've, they've worked within comedy. They, they tend to have created a lot of these types of shows and or overseen the production of these types of shows. And for some reason, they just can't get it to travel super well on streaming, which is not to say that you don't have successes, right? I think one of Netflix's earliest successes, and I think it's still rated actually as its highest critically acclaimed show, is BoJack Horseman, which is an animated comedy. Um, they've had, you know, F is for Family, another animated comedy, Big Mouth animated comedy. Actually, I think that's really interesting in general. Like Netflix has a strong animated comedy program. This is where a lot of their success in comedy comes from. The thing that I get told by a lot of executives when it comes to comedy 
is that it's really difficult to create global comedy because it's so regional. It's so like what might be funny in Spain because of just cultural or political or, or socioeconomic aspects is not funny in um, Mexico or the United States or, or Argentina or whatever it might be. And so it's really hard to make some of those comedies travel. But, you know, there's a hyper focus on being hyper local. And so you would think, well, regardless of that, there should be able to make a new girl. And I don't actually know what the reason is for not being able to make a really strong sitcom. The only thing I can think of, interested in your take on this, Jason, is that sitcoms in particular and comedies need uh, a pretty long runway. You don't really get into a great season of a sitcom until season two or three. Think about Parks and Recreation. Think about The Office. Think about 30 Rock even. Seinfeld. It's just like you, you need time to really find those characters. And so for broadcast as we've talked about in this podcast, you kind of have the advantage of saying, well, if there's somewhat of an audience and the advertisers are happy, right? And so they can kind of say, well, in this demo, you're reaching in. And so they go for season two, season three. And then by the second or third season, typically what you see with a, a good comedy is that it starts to pick up. And so they get more marketing, more placement, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes a five season show, which then becomes syndicated and therefore is just open to more people. Mm-hmm. And those are the types of shows that perform really well. When, we, when Brandon and I, um, Brandon works at Paradise Analytics with us, he's on my team. When Brandon and I look at the data for comedy, and for sitcom, you know, it really is a strong retention player for a lot of these um, streaming services. But if we think about how streaming operates, right, the ability that the shows need to really bring in a decent sized audience off the bat, the economics of it have changed completely. Comedy is a bit of a harder gamble than a drama, uh, it, it, which um, you, is a little bit more kind of cover to cover. People come in, they watch it. You know, the same kind of thing goes for procedural. It's really hard. It, no, Netflix has not made a good procedural. Like Netflix has not made a good cop show, right. despite it being like the go-to type of content on broadcast television that that secures 9, 10 million viewers every single week that it airs. Uh, and so I think it's just, it's, it's, it's part of this really interesting dynamic of like, from a revenue perspective, there's not a great reason to throw a ton of money, or there wasn't until advertising came aboard. There wasn't a good reason to kind of throw a ton of money at sitcoms and comedies. And, you know, Netflix and all of them could argue that they were kind of being the anti-broadcast by moving away from that mm-hmm. and saying, well, that's a CBS or an ABC or an NBC staple, and we don't need that. Although they keep trying to do that, right? Netflix bought Good Girls, Netflix uh, bought... Um, uh, Girls Five Eva from NBC, like they're like, they've hired NBC executives to Bella Bajara, who's literally their head of content, worked with Universal um, Content, Universal Television, and so like they clearly want that, and they're clearly trying to develop it. But yeah, it's it's weird, right? That like no one's mastered it. What's what's your thought on it? I uh yeah I I so I think you really outlined it perfectly, it, and and I think you're right that patience is part of the problem. I think the mentality of streaming and. You know, I used to say never say or I used to say that it'll never happen. And now I say never say never because we've seen just in the last year how so many tenants, fundamentals of the streaming world have changed. Right. Like they threw out the old playbook and there's a new playbook now. So I don't want to say never, but it certainly seems that up to now streaming services have been services have been incredibly reluctant to invest in comedy like networks do. And it's a little bit weird um, and I don't know how much of it is. I think some of it is is attitude, is culture. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, we're we're Netflix. We don't just put on crabby sitcoms and see what works. And it's like, well, no, 
the reason that all those the successful sitcoms you run and are successful with happened is because a network executive, a broadcast TV network executive in the United States at one of these companies you turn your nose up at, like NBC, put five sitcoms on their schedule and one of them was a hit. And one of them was middling and they gave it two years, which means they gave it 40 episodes and it was middling and it didn't really work. And Netflix is like, well, no, we ordered 10 half hours and they didn't hit in the first two days on our metric. And so it's done. And and culturally, like they're just not wired. So I, I want to say they're never going to get it. But I don't I don't know if I believe that. The problem is the other fact that we have to bring into evidence here, which is Peacock did try to develop comedies and they didn't work. They 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 right. they didn't work. They they did sell girls five Eva off, which is funny. Rutherford Falls didn't work there. Um, they've had Peacock has tried to do the Tina Fey and Mike Schur, they're two big comedy producers that they've got on, in a deal at NBC Universal to launch streaming comedies on Peacock, and it hasn't worked. So I, that part of it, I, I wonder about, although even then, there's a question about marketing and there's a question about discoverability. And I, I, part of me, Julia, wants to say, I wonder if you could launch a, a sitcom on a fast platform and if that might actually work better because it's more sitcom-y to just say, oh, just tune in. You don't have to pay anything. You go to Pluto right. and, and we ordered. But it still requires whoever that is to say, yeah, we're going to give you not just 10. We're going to give you 15 or 20. And then if you're even remotely OK, we're going to give you 15 or 20 more because the only way sitcoms really do seem to work in America and, and, and that you get those big sitcoms is by giving them a big runway so that's that's i also think yeah go ahead i know i was gonna say i think you touched upon a really important factor in this which we talked about in our last podcast um which happened two weeks ago two weeks ago and not yesterday (laughs) but um but when you which you talked about in our last episode which was you know the advantage that netflix has is is the scalability is the fact to say well we put this out and a quarter of a billion people will see it to your excellent point about peacock you know, the issue with some of those shows, which are great shows, like critics love those yep. shows, Girls 5 Eva. Um, there was another one um, about a couple of young girls in a band. I can't remember oh, the name of Oh, We Are Lady of, Parts, yeah. We Are Lady Parts or Rutherford Falls. Mm-hmm. All of those are like phenomenal shows. And the, are, the issue is that their comedy is really, really hard to as an acquisition driver. Now, what we mean, what I mean by that is a show, an established oh, yeah. comedy, and there's about maybe 12 of these. That really has a built-in fan base, a Friends, a Seinfeld, the, a, the office. a Big Bang Theory, The Office, mm-hmm. a South Park especially. People will those go, will acquire subscribers. Yeah, they'll go to those services. Right. And, and, Be, and, exactly. And, 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 but most sitcoms, you have to sort of drift into it, right? You're not going to say, oh, there's a new sitcom from NBC. I shall I shall go sign it, up it, for Peacock it, now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and think about the fact that, you know, Peacock's biggest lifts in subscriptions came from sports, sports. Um, came from like the NFL, from Premier League, WWE. Yeah. It came yeah, from Olympics. some other shows. It was not this. And mm-hmm. so the idea was like, if people find a sitcom, right? Think about how many of us who watch broadcast TV found a show because it just played right after a game or it played right after a law and order or whatever it was, right? Like that type of advantage that broadcast has, the ability to just say, we're playing this and we hope that people will kind of catch in the first minute or two and then be invested, doesn't happen in streaming because streaming is all about 
uh, uh, decision. You are it, It's intentional choice. You are going out and saying, I'm going to click this button. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to open it. And that is a little bit more doable on a Netflix or even a Hulu and HBO Max where you have a, a decent sized body of subscribers of people who are looking around and browsing. But on a Peacock, that's not going to happen. So you have these great shows, but mismatched to the wrong platform. And so what you see, I think a lot of Netflix people, uh, executives saying is like, of course, we'd like to develop our own. We're going to figure it out. But if we see a competitor with a great show that we think can do well on our platform, again, we've seen this happen with Netflix multiple times. They're just going to buy it and say, well, we're going to try to make it a hit. And I think the issue with Netflix is they have not been able to make a great, great sitcom despite efforts with something like The Ranch, which came from Chuck Lorre, who's the master of, of sitcom. They've done BoJack Horseman, mm-hmm. like all these types of shows. They haven't really been able to kind of hit that live action sitcom audience. And I think it's because people aren't seeking it out on yeah. Netflix and people aren't necessarily going to just tune into it because it automatically plays. And I think that's the conversation with sitcom. The more that with I think about it, actually, Jason, I love the way you kind of, you kind of set this up because I'm really thinking about it in a new way, which is awesome, is like, I think the issue is that there's no autoplay. There's no, like, you're just going to roll into it. And I think that's right. how so many people find comedy. And it's just like, it's on. I think about when I was a kid and I was watching Adult Swim stuff, right? And it was just on. And you were like, oh, well, this is crazy. And now the amount of stuff that I I found through that or or reruns that, you know, people came into Friends when they were younger via reruns on TBS. Mm-hmm. Like, like that kind of just, well, this is on. I'm going to watch it. Um, and you don't have that with streaming. And to your point, maybe fast, but how many people are tuning into know. fast, so, right? So, yeah, and I, I think, I think, yeah, I think what we're getting at here, and, and by the way, uh, I do this for all my tech stuff. Feel free to steal as much of this for your putt column as as possible. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder if the the hit-making machinery that has made Netflix so successful for originals just is not, it isn't the playbook for comedies. It doesn't work that way. And I'm not sure, honestly, if it's worth them creating a new playbook just for comedies or if the truth is more like Netflix as an organization is not really here to break comedies. They're here to buy catalogs of comedies and make everybody like just spend many hours using them. But maybe they're not the ones who develop them and break them, which fast might not be the answer to. I will say, and I know this is very American centric, but a lot of these sitcoms are they're from the American sitcom industrial complex. That's where they come from. And when they hit, they're huge. I, I don't want to I'm not trying to be condescending when I say that maybe the, the net TV networks are a farm system or a development system for sitcoms. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's lesser. I just think that format still works for developing sitcoms in a way that streaming doesn't. And also now, again, since the playbook has changed, since we're in a an era where there's even the even the big companies that have their own streaming services are getting into more of a content arms dealer uh, portion of their business where there's like, well, not everything has to be on HBO Max, right? Like, we'll, we'll also right. make other stuff and sell it elsewhere. And it's fine if you're if you're uh, if you're Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, if you're Sony, you're you're really well positioned because you don't really have something like this. And uh, if you're if you're Disney, you have ABC, right? So you don't have to put it straight on Hulu or or Disney Plus. If you're uh, Peacock, you have NBC for that. If you're Paramount, you have CBS for that. So you've got another place to develop the sitcoms, and maybe that's the best place, and that maybe that's where the economics work. And in fact. 
if you're factoring in the value of selling off that catalog at the end, you know, it used to be you get 100 episodes, you go in syndication. Now it's more like, what's the prize at the end? The prize at the end is that uh, streaming services like Netflix is going to back up the truck with money because they really want that show. And it's going to and as we talked about last week, once it hits Netflix, it's going to do incredibly well because it's Netflix, yeah. right? Like there is some magic that'll happen there. So the example I wanted to give since we're talking about de- development is uh do you know call me cat do you know what that is <laughs> you know what's funny i didn't until this morning when i was working on a project for a client and now i know what it is okay i i only know about it because i watch jeopardy and my Bialik, uh who is on the big bang theory and of course something there's trouble on the set of blossom back in the day she was on blossom um she was blossom she's got a show on fox and if dear listener, if you know, great, good for you. Um, it's a sitcom. I only know about it again through knowing that she's on Jeopardy. Um, it's they've already produced fifty episodes of it. It's in its third season on the air on Fox. And again, Fox, a good example of a company that doesn't really have its own studio, so they're buying reality programming and sitcoms and and other stuff. And and I forget exactly who is. Uh, developing this, some combination of uh, Warner Warner Brothers and BBC Studios, uh, and Fox as a co-producer. So my point here is, this is the American sitcom industrial complex, right? Is like there are sitcoms putting out fifty, a hundred episodes that a lot of yeah. people have never heard of, and that is like streaming can't just can't. It can't do that. So as long as you can make the economics work to, again, put on five shows, find the one that's a hit and the two that are possible, give them a second season. The, the After the second season, one of the two drops out. The other one gets a third season. The hit, you're already writing it. The other two people have forgotten about already. Like, that's the classic TV development system. But like... It still works for sitcoms. It really does. So maybe that's the answer is if you're Sony, you're like, well, we're going to produce sitcoms or you're Warner Brothers or whoever. We're going to produce sitcoms and we'll, we'll find a network. And we'll also our license fee to the network is going to be calculated based on the fact that we are also taking a chance on this because, boy, we're going to make a lot of money if this ends up being a hit because we're going to be able to sell think- it to Netflix. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I also I get told this a lot by um some of the broadcast partners I work with and and we talk a lot about just kind of, you know, state of the industry and ratings and audience movement and all that. And something that, you know, comes up quite often is these sitcoms, you know, to Jason's point that people and like that we might not have heard of, right? Like Jason and I haven't heard of, these shows do well. Like these shows have like millions of people who tune in every week. A show like an NCIS or a Grey's Anatomy, I mean, these are obviously procedurals, still net like eight, nine million viewers. And and you look at a sitcom, even the ones you might not necessarily have heard of, they're still netting three, four million, two, two to three to four million people per week, right? And so the the, the argument that you hear a lot of people in the broadcast system say is like, we're, our shows are actually well watched, you know, compared to kind of a Netflix, uh, which showcases global uh, viewership by hourly kind of breakdown. Um, You know, like in terms of what we're doing, like we actually have this audience that advertisers are happy to kind of be on, especially because that audience tends to be a little bit older. So the advertisers know, you know, it's really hard for uh, advertisers to really determine TV impact as in how many people are actually impacted or seeing the advertisement that they're running and not just kind of walking away from it. 
It's hard to measure that, but within broadcasts and kind of within these sitcoms, which are kind of middle America type type shows, which again, that's awesome. But it's just, I think it really gets into this conversation that kind of Jason's talking about, which is we don't necessarily talk about it and the industry doesn't really talk about it. But if you think about the fact that like a show like Call Me Cat might have 3 million people tune in every week, Mm -hmm. that's more than Succession. Right. Like, like that's more that like Succession got 2.3 million viewers for its premiere. And that was a high. And that's great for HBO. Like, that's a really great number for HBO for that show. Like, that's awesome. And I think it gets into this moment of like what we define as successful within the kind of broadcast space and what we define as successful within the premium cable and what we define successful as in streaming are all operating against different benchmarks. And I think that is a, 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 a big issue. And sitcoms kind of fall into this, which to Jason's exact point, you know, I'm just going to reiterate because I think it's exactly right, is like the economics of streaming do not necessarily allow for kind of the sitcom development cycle that the broadcast system allows for. And that's in part because of the advertising economics. That is in part because of how they kind of value subscriber acquisition, mm-hmm. retention, how they value engagement. Um, but it does not mean that there is not a strong desire for sitcom. It is just with all these different benchmarks and and, and without an industry standard to really understand and, and parse and, and then further act upon a lot of the data that we see in terms of audience and viewer behavior it gets really hard to say like this is something that we want to take a bet on versus this is something that we know is kind of going to work so we're going to go there yeah your point about um about the budget too i think is important and like you you said they're lower budget higher engagement and lengthier session times like there are lots of things great about sitcoms um the lower budget is important right and and again maybe maybe the economics work better like i said i think a streamer could probably develop a sitcom strategy but it would have to be radically different and the discovery might still not be there and and that's why something like a broadcast network as outmoded as a lot of us think broadcast networks are it's like when was the last time you watched a a regular broadcast network show and i mean there are answers law and order is an answer right and that's one of those affinity channels or affinity categories uh cw superhero show that's one of those affinity categories but the fact is it is a great place to develop this kind of pro- content. And so I think I think maybe that's the answer, right? Which is uh, as weird as it seems to say, maybe the old ways are best. Maybe the old ways are best. And the fact that it is uh, relatively inexpensive to produce, right? Because call me cat. I'm just going to go out on a limb cheaper than succession, right? I, I'm going to I'm just going to say I think it's probably cheaper to make call me cat than it is to make succession. Just throwing it out there. Uh, yeah. tell me, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, those people seem, <laughs> no, I think no. they're paying those people a lot of money and it looks it's, it's, like it's, a it's, you're definitely, you're definitely right. And it's, uh, you know, it's again, I, I say this expression a lot in here, but it's like apples to kumquats. Like it's, it's, you know, like Casey Bloys and the team are not out trying to make the America's next best sitcom. They're making a very specific show for a very specific audience. And they're very happy with what they're spending on it and what they're getting from it and what that does for HBO and HBO Max and the brand and the longevity of it. They're happy. And I think when you look at CBS, ABC, NBC, they're operating with much less budget than HBO. They're, they're, they're targeting a much wider audience. So it has to do more. It has to travel more. Um, and they're working with advertisers who are very concerned about their brands and very concerned about what they're advertising on they choose to be on nbc or cbs or abc specifically because it's nbc cbs or abc like like they they know what that is and they want to be there they want to be attached to the sports right so they want to say 
we want to be on a, a baseball game or, or a football game. And then we want to be in the lead in afterwards. So we want to be the first commercial that airs, you know, right when the new show starts. And that might be a sitcom or whatever it might be. There's there's just a whole different dynamic that comes down to really making, you know, both HBO and, and ABC are going are trying to make every dollar account for, you know, $4 in revenue. They're, they're all trying to do that. It is just a different approach. And where sitcoms really work economically is broadcast far less on premium cable or far less in streaming exactly. but that from from a development standpoint but that does not mean they don't want them they absolutely want them you ask anyone HBO Max what the most watched show on HBO is or HBO Max is at any given time in terms of on average it's game of thrones and then and then also like big bang theory and friends right? they know that they yeah. need these types of shows could they develop those shows probably not at least not currently they might change in the next couple of years as they kind of rejig their content spend their content strategy will they spend money to acquire those shows that the broadcast de- uh, executives know that they still have a lock on absolutely yeah. so to your point about sony like why not exactly all right um let us move on and uh, do a little well, it's 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 sports corner letter edition sports, sports corner sports corner Jim uh, wrote in and said, most of the talk about uh, on your podcast about uh, regional sports networks and streaming is about pro sports. But what do you think is going to happen with college sports outside of the major football programs or March Madness? Are we going to see at some point an SEC or Big Ten or the like package that you can get as an add on to ESPN Plus or whatever else? So um, I, I'm going to I'm going to field this one. You jump in when Go you're for ready. It. Um uh, first off, when we talk about college sports, uh, football is where the money is. So that's number one. March Madness, yes. March Madness is is a great tournament. Just ended. I mean, two weeks ago it ended. Two weeks ago it ended. Uh, <laughs> uh, not yesterday. Two weeks ago. So... Um, you know, so really you got to look at college football and you got to look at the major conferences and what you see there is there's a lot of money that's coming in from broadcast and from cable like ESPN and we are going to start to see uh, deals if we haven't in the last two weeks. Hmm. Oh, deals with streamers getting part of it. And we've seen the streamers be part of the NFL as well. But in terms of college, it's going to happen. Like the Pac-12 deal is probably going to include uh, streamer if it hasn't already because uh, that may be imminent. I don't know uh, as we record this. So I think I, I think that's part of it. Uh, I, I suspect that in the end you're going to see something like that where there's like the Big Ten channel and the SEC channel. Those are essentially uh, they're like regional sports networks, but they're also being pro- produced and partially owned by companies like Fox and ESPN. So my guess is that they will be part of a larger strategy. Like if ESPN is producing your college conference network channel and it's putting it on cable at some point that stuff is probably going to get rolled into espn plus is my guess because the stuff that's on the sec network or the big 10 network is not the premier stuff the premier games are being put on fox or abc or cbs or espn or fs1 um they're not being put on the big 10 network that that's the that's your lesser games sorry iowa versus rutgers (laughs) but 
that's hey i'm a cal fan i get it the cal games are always on the pac-12 networks it's like that's just that's just how it is it's the it's the lower part of the inventory it still has value but not as much value so i would say yeah in the long run i don't know if it's an add-on or if it just gets rolled into espn plus but it, it feels like that they will all shift to that model and it will not be as painful because they have they tend to have partners the pac-12 is actually the only one that doesn't have a partner of the of the major five for their channel which is why um as of this recording uh they'll probably you know sell that off essentially to a streamer and say you've got all that stuff now uh including the production facility so i i think college you will see it the problem and this is a universal american college sports problem is football's where the money is all the decisions are made because of football basketball there's a little bit of money um so some decisions are made with at least a little basketball in mind but it's mostly football all other sports are ignored so um which is bad for them i think ask a ucla volleyball player who's going to have to start playing all their games in the midwest right because they're going to go to the big 10 that was a football decision everybody else will suffer because of it so um my my guess is those sports are still added inventory and they are the ones that you will see on espn plus or something like that maybe it's an add-on maybe it isn't i don't really know but my guess is it will probably be more additive because they're going to want to puff up espn plus for example to just say thousands and thousands of sports including that volleyball match that you want to see that's part of the the sec uh volleyball tournament or something like that i think that that will a lot of that stuff is just going to go to streaming because they have infinite inventory which is something that uh linear tv doesn't have so that's my that's my quick take on it what do you think julia i feel like i unfortunately don't follow the kind of college sports especially college football to your point rights enough to have okay. anything additionally meaningful to add well, to that because I, I think I read a you lot just about gave this me one. a fantastic <laughs> no you gave me a fantastic education that was like extremely good for me and i think i speak for all of our listeners like that well, was if, we, this if, is what sports corner should be so my my team and my conference are have spent the last year dealing with sports rights issues um so i've i've read an awful lot about it at this point anyway it will be interesting to see if it hasn't already happened what the pac-12 deal looks like because in some ways it may augur the future in terms of having a major streaming component as part of it um streamers are also less concerned about time slots than broadcast is which is linear is which is kind of funny right but it is true like streamers streamers can put on three games at one o'clock on a saturday afternoon they don't have to put them at, you know, at, at five and seven and two. And like, what are we, cause they, they have infinite, um, infinite inventory behind it. So I don't know. We'll see, but there's a lot of money to be made in college football. I think in the long run, what's going to happen is there's going to be a breakaway. Um, this is my, my not very bold prediction, which is in the 2030s, there'll be a breakaway from the NCAA and the major colleges that do college football are going to break away and form their own NFL like league. And the, that'll all be about the money. And the good news is it will allow all the other sports that college, actual college student athletes play to no longer have their schedules like that UCLA volleyball player who's going to have to go to Rutgers, go to New Jersey in order to play a volleyball match instead of going to Seattle. Um, that will stop at that point. I feel like the conference, regional conferences will come back and be less distorted because the football money will be gone. But the football money is real. It is an enormous, it is second only to the NFL in sports in the U.S. And, and, and 
in the end, the money will win. And in the end, I think they'll take their ball and go home. Kind of like the the for any non-American fan, fans, any soccer fans who are still out there listening. I don't know why you are, but uh, it's like this, like the European Super League. It's going to be a little like that, except uh, in America, that strategy works, which is the 50 best, 40 best college football teams just take their ball and uh, and go home. And uh, and they, they and then they get all the money. And that's what's going to so- happen. Okay, so uh, so if we do uh, two podcasts a month, uh, well, twelve months, forty eight podcasts. Yeah, it's, it's twenty twenty three, so seven years. Yeah, just doing some very quick math. It, check, so check back in in like episode two hundred and forty. Episode four hundred, <laughs> we will <laughs> wow. have an idea okay. of what uh, of what the future of college right. football looks like. We'll Put it on your calendar. Episode four hundred, Sports Corner. We got it. <laughs> All right, let's do another uh, a few letters before we go. Um, Daniel writes, can you describe how Nielsen measures streaming? I read that P- Nielsen's tool for measuring out-of-home viewing figures is something called Nielsen Portable People Meter. First, that sounds like a terrible alternate product name for Star Trek transporters. Second, the meter seems to be a pager-like device used to measure nearby audio. How do you count folks who wear headphones while streaming a European soccer match in their car in a Trader Joe's parking lot on a Saturday morning? This is very specific, Daniel. Love to your mothers, Daniel. Uh, what, what about, yeah, measurements in general uh nielsen is an interesting example but like how do you measure viewership when we have so many different ways to view i love the idea here of like if you're if you're streaming peacock uh in your car at the trader joe's parking lot on your phone you're still a viewer versus sitting down at a tv in your living room yeah also you're kind of not like like so the way that nielsen measures first of all right like it's actually pretty basic you sign up to be a nielsen house um nielsen basically puts uh a a tracker of sorts into different devices across different individuals within the household um to then which is a new update by the way that's kind of what you're saying by the that people meter that's what that is It's, it's instead of just the household it is now like people within the household um and so they go through and then they watch and then they take an s they that data comes in and they they use all that data across all the different households with sampling panel in the United States to then create an estimated rating. And that's kind of what we get to today. Um, and so the issue with Nielsen is that it still doesn't really track like iPad usage very well. Um, mm. it, it only recently started tracking Paramount Plus. Uh, there's a lot of problems with uh, like it doesn't necessarily track like PlayStation or Xbox usage as far as I re- can recall, unless they've changed that recently. Um, so there's all these issues that kind of come into the 2020s version of watching television and streaming television that Nielsen is not as as adept at capturing. Now, that is not to say that Nielsen is bad by whatever means. Nielsen is still great. That sampling is still very, very important, very, very lucrative to many of the American companies. Um, The other big issue with Nielsen, as anyone will tell you, it is not global. So when in an increasingly globally focused world, Nielsen, uh, an an industry, Nielsen um, kind of has its issues. But from a domestic standpoint, it is, you know, many, many companies will tell you that they still consider it kind of their gold standard. Then you have additional measurement companies, uh, Pair Analytics, where I work Mm -hmm. is one of them. We kind of collect 
everything from consumption as in people actually watching stuff to social media to social video to search which would include wikipedia um, google but, all that fun but stuff but you're not monitoring behavior are you you're asking panelists what they've done what they're so we interested don't use in panelists we actually collect from uh 500 i think it's per month or per day we have 500 million um piracy streams that we collect and so we are not huh. tapped into any of the actual companies disadvantage to that uh we are not going to be able to tell HBO Max the viewership for their um, uh, shows, but also HBO Max is going to have that information without question. They already know what people are watching right, on they, their shows. Yeah, if you're if you're if you're Peacock, you know that person is watching the Premier League and the Trader Joe's right. parking lot on their phone. They know that. It's just that nobody else does. Right, and so the so our advantage at, at Parrot is that because we can look at these streams and our sample pool is five hundred million, and because we look at that, we can also see like we can't see if it's like Joe Smith in Albuquerque watching this, but we can see what they're they've downloaded and what they're watching. So we can outside the uh, closed garden. So we can actually go and say like, okay, well they watched this title on HBO Max and then went here, or they watched this many titles on HBO Max before they went here, or whatever it might be. I'm simplifying our data quite a bit, but we use that to kind of get a picture of um, audience health. Um, Nielsen is a, also a picture of audience health, but it is a direct correlation between what people are watching on their devices, in their home, uh, or like at a bar, whatever it might be, um, to then take a across that sample to then get a uh, an estimated measurement of rating. Um, there are other companies that exist. There's like WIP that kind of do similar things based on what access to data they can get or, or credit cards, all of which is a long way of saying it's actually very simple the way Nielsen collects it. It's basically, you sign up, they put a thing in. If, if it's on a device that they track, they put it in, they watch it, they collect right. that data, and they send it, um, and they and they use a sample pool, to a panel to do it. It's... Um, that's it's Nielsen. It's been this way mm. since the fifties. They've they've updated it with new technology, and there's uh, definitely some issues with aspects of it, but pretty simple through and through. Yeah, it's just not. It, it, I mean, now that you've got uh, direct, everybody knows their own numbers. It's just it's that right. Nielsen is most relevant because it's uh, it's public and it's all the numbers for everybody based on their sample, and that's that's a different kind of set of data than like anybody's going to have with just their internal numbers. It's interesting. Right. And and the other trends here. We, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and, let's, and t Jason brings up a really good point. Like, let's be very, very clear. Nielsen exists not for the networks. Nielsen exists for the advertisers, advertisers yeah. who could then look at the ratings across all these different networks and say, well, NBC has the, you know, 10.0 in the 8, 8 p.m. slot. ABC only has a 6.4 in the 10 o'clock in the 8 p.m. slot. We want it. We'll pay more money to reach this audience, um, which Nielsen also says, you know, here's the demographic of this audience uh, at 8 p.m. because those, of that demo number. Yeah. Like, it was those numbers for don't advertisers. Exist yeah, those numbers are much smaller now than they were with the, yeah, you, they're like you're quoting classic eight. numbers it's like oh 1.2 yay um uh but yeah it's it's uh so anyway yeah it, there's different ways to measure and including what parrot does and if you're an advertiser you want to find that's the one thing that i think is is fun about uh all the new ad supported uh tiers of all these streaming services is You've got to get ad data. I assume that all of those tiers are using some sort of a third party verification where they're seeing what ads roll and that there's because the I presumably the advertisers. I don't know about this part. I only know from my experience on uh, at a web media company, but I assume that there is an ad server somewhere and there's some independent verification of the metrics so that if you put uh, mid roll ads or pre roll ads on Peacock that or paramount plus let's say 
that you are getting or Netflix ultimately that you get some idea of how many impressions your ads actually got. Uh, even assuming they're not like, I want, I want the first commercial break in this hot show on Netflix. They're presumably just buying impressions. I, I don't, I, I, I have to assume there's some independent verification going on there. Otherwise you could cook the numbers. Exactly. Yeah. No, there's definitely and there's also third party verification that yeah. like so Netflix works with a bunch of different boards that then verify their numbers and, and yeah. they they go through it. Um and this is gonna constantly be changing and, and there will be pressure from the guilds, there'll be pressure from the advertisers to have more of this information right. public because transparency then allows them to make better decisions for their own businesses and to negotiate better. Right. So you'll see changes happen to Nielsen, to other companies over the next, you know few to many years as these changes really come into play. But just know that ratings uh, are great for, I mean, if you were just interested in them, that's awesome. They're also great for um, agents and advertisers to better right. negotiate and make better decisions. It is would be, it would be of the utmost importance or of the utmost upper handness to the, to the actual streaming platforms, to the networks, to not give it out. Uh, but they, that will that will change as pressure grows. Yeah. I mean, if you've got advertisers, you have to do it. And I'm glad you mentioned the guild and the agents. We've mentioned this before, but it's another important point, which is if you're a producer of a show that is very successful on Netflix and Netflix won't give you any information about it, it's very hard to negotiate your next deal and to pit Netflix up against uh, Peacock or HBO Max who doesn't have access to the Netflix data and you can't really just say like trust me Netflix says it was great when you're negotiating so having some raw numbers to say this was a hit look at how big a hit this was uh, that helps in your negotiations too so th that stuff is what is going to motivate um, more disclosure but the the ad putting ads in your content is going to motivate a certain like that's what motivates the streamers to disclose right is that they got to sell ads so they're gonna it serves their their purposes it's money coming in instead of the money going out to pay for the content creators um all right uh rahul wrote in with a great observation i ha i made this observation too i think it's really great that rahul wrote in on the most recent season of the mandalorian there's a shop tab in the disney plus interface it seems strange disney didn't do this before where users could buy items directly from or about the show right on the platform do you think other streamers will follow um yeah i think right? i think they will i think <laughs> uh, I, I think bluntly they will also very few companies have the show to merch uh pipeline oh, yeah. uh and 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 really like that like uh, avid consumer base that disney, disney has disney does it because whether it's parents who are like my kids watching lion king they want a simba plushie or whether it's you know marvel fans or star wars or whatever it might be disney knows that there is an audience for that you'll also see much more integration with watching disney plus and buying tickets to the parks um disney this is their flywheel like this is their yeah. entire business the, the streaming service was built to be a platform to supplement the entire business it was not built to just kind of uh, be a place where people stream content which is of course what they do but it's, it's primary use beyond that is to like really support the, the the rest of the company. So you can see how Peacock might do that, right? With with Universal and, and with the studios. Um, you could obviously see how Warner Brothers and HBO Max would get into that. Um, Netflix obviously being a kind of next stop, although Netflix's approach to merchandise has been much more um, uh, interesting and, and chaotic, I, I would argue. You will see it. You, you, you'll see, there's a really great book that came out. Um, we'll put it in the show notes. It, it's a mini book. It's free. It's from my buddy, Matt Ball, um, called The Streaming, I think he called it The Streaming Wars. Uh, and it's, 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 it kind of looks at the past, present, and future of streaming. And there's the three eras, right? There's kind of this like 
availability era this or adoption era where people have to like go to streaming services then there's like the content era that we're currently in which is this like battle for content exclusive licensing all that and the next step is once content saturates and there's no real strong differentiator anymore, which is what we're approaching, your streaming services have to become full-blown platforms. They have to they have to command attention and command uh, additional attention outside of the, the the streaming service itself to ensure that it kind of be, remains this cultural hub. And so you think about that, you know, like a PlayStation, right? Could be that. Like a PlayStation where you have Sony movies and you've got additional content and you're playing games and you can do whatever else. Or Disney being the core example, obviously, of like Disney Plus and the parks and the merch and the comics or whatever it might be. You're going to see more companies try to do this um, as they need their services to become dedicated hubs. Netflix obviously figuring out games. Uh, I don't know how many of them will be able to do it the way that Disney has. I will say the key example of like where to look at for this is not necessarily Disney Plus. It is YouTube. Um, YouTube built in the what they call YouTube shelves. Yeah. So they work with creators who are part of the YouTube partner program um, to offer them effectively like an Amazon style e-commerce shelf on their page. So all these creators have merchandise. They make they make decent money on it. And so they can just list it out. And YouTube takes, I think, like 3%. When they launched it, they took nothing. They were like, we just want you to have it. And the idea was that as people were watching these videos and buying stuff, not only was that better for, you know, the creators, was only was that better for, for um, the advertisers who could then see, like, well, we want to be on this or whatever it might be. There's additional buying power here. It's great for Google and collecting data, right? Like, are they actually spending? What are they spending money on? How can we then better target advertising, but depending on the type of merch they're buying and the, and the creators that they're watching? And so the more data that they collected, the more they could then use that data to get you to spend more money or spend more time on different websites that advertisers really loved and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So YouTube is kind of the ideal for like what that e-commerce shelf within a video playing platform would look like. And I think you'll see Disney kind of take a lot of lessons from YouTube. And then I think you'll see a lot of other companies take lessons from Disney. But YouTube is really a great case of of, of how this kind of could work on a video dominated platform. Um, and it, it's, it's pretty seamless so far. Um, and, and they do everything from you know, plushies to clothes to makeup or whatever it might be. So it, I, yeah, I think I think it's inevitable that more companies will do this. Yeah, th- for Disney, this is essentially the exit from the gift shop strategy or exit through the gift right. shop strategy. It is what they are good at. And so, of course, it makes sense. In fact, so I watched um, recently the Tetris movie on Apple TV Plus, and I was actually oh, right. surprised. So there's, there is a Tetris-like thing in the App Store, and you can get the Tetris app there and all of that. But I had this moment where, where I thought, okay, the Tetris company sells merch. There's a Tetris app on the App Store. And I was actually a little surprised that, at how restrained Apple was. They're like, well, that movie is over. It's like, well, guys, you've got an app you could get people to download. I was watching on an Apple TV. If you're on an iPhone or an iPad or an Apple TV, like have a link to the App Store. Ha- sell, a t- sell a hat. Whatever. You, it actually kind of makes sense that you would do stuff like that and i I, i'm struck also by not everything is going to be like this right like you don't know if something's going to be a hit and there's going to be a big merch audience if you're if you're disney and you're making a star wars show you do but mostly you don't but like i'm reminded of the fact that uh apple was so bad apple and um warner brothers were so bad at ted lasso that they didn't have proper ted lasso merch really proper ted lasso merch until this year and even so it's not as if there's a, a link at the end of ted lasso to let you buy the ted lasso nike 
uh, Richmond AFC or AFC Richmond Jersey, which they sell. And like, why isn't there? I mean, that is, and that it's not like, it's not an ad. I'm not saying put a pop-up ad in the show. I'm saying when I'm done with the show or when I'm about to play the show, wouldn't it be cool if there was a thing that said, here's, you know, do you want Ted's Jersey? I would actually think that that would be, there would be some value to that. Um, but I agree with you. Uh, yeah, it's totally going to happen like, because it's more money. And uh, and because this is all digital, it's direct links to buy things and they know your credit card number. So you could just even potentially just buy it right then. So it's going to happen. Um, one more yeah. one more letter, I think uh, this is a good one. It's from Brad. Do you think a contributing factor to slow Apple TV Plus adoption is that it requires your iCloud or Apple ID password? Password sharing seems so common and helps grow the overall audience, but I would never consider sharing my Apple ID with anyone. It's way too sensitive to share even with close friends. A single password for a standard streaming service is really not much of a security risk, but your whole iCloud and Apple ID is so much. I wonder if what you think about this, considering this is a special case that only affects apple i had never really considered this and i think it's absolutely something right it is not you can't easily password share with apple tv plus because everybody's credit cards are tied to their apple ids and their purchases and their storage and all sorts of other stuff that's tied in with your apple id your iphone uh is you know your entire life is attached to that apple id so i don't know if it's a huge factor right but i i think that it has made apple tv plus from the very beginning a much more difficult service because you'd have to basically set up like a phony apple id and then there's also complications of like if if you're watching on an apple device and you're using a different id than the id that you have that's for you everything it's like can you even do that is it messed up is it confusing so like yeah i think this is a, an interesting example of how uh remember when netflix said that password uh, love was sharing your password like password sharing can help build interest in a service by letting you essentially uh gift a subscription to a friend based on your password and the apple tv stuff is basically locked down where you can't do that so i would say i would say yes although let's not over overemphasize it julia what do you think yeah i think i think it's a really good point. I think there is absolutely something to it. Um, I think the fact that you can have Apple TV Plus on non-Apple devices that still requires an Apple ID is the most Apple thing I've ever – like, right. you know, it's just so – like, it's so Apple. But um, I also think, to, to Jason's point, like, it's less to do with people don't want to share their Apple ID, although I'm sure that's absolutely a part of it. I think that absolutely makes up a, a conversation point about this um, and more to do with, like – there's just not much on Apple TV Plus. There's a few shows that people real are interested in, but it's not enough to say like, oh, I'm going to sign up for this, right? Like you kind of do that equation in your head of like, do I really need to sign up for Apple TV Plus to watch Ted Lasso? Can I just put, stream it on like a Plex that I have access to a <laughs> server on? Like, like, no, like it's, it's, do, is this something that I can, you know, live without with all the other shows in my life? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that has, I think, I, I think there, there, there's a, a thing about getting people to sign up for Apple TV Plus is less to do with like, oh, I need to put in my Apple ID or like I can't take my buddies because of the Apple ID and more. And again, think about it from this perspective. If you're sharing your Apple TV Plus account with someone, like if you're like, hey, whatever, you can have my Apple ID. I've got nothing on it. Like you can you can um, use it. I trust you. You actually don't 
matter to Apple. Right. You're, you're not paying for the service. Like you're, it, it, they're good from an engagement standpoint, but there's no ads. So it's like it's not even like they're making money off that extra engagement. They can bring that to you know to to partners they want to work with or whatever it might be, but it's not a, a massive off offshoot on them the bigger issue is getting people to sign up so it's not necessarily an apple id question it's like okay well how do we increase the perceived overall value of our service month to month in order for them to come here so in our last podcast again that jason and i recorded two weeks ago mm-hmm. and not yesterday two weeks um ago. it was two weeks ago um you know we talked about the fact that the films that they're bringing to theaters is a huge marketing pull for apple tv plus and getting people to kind of sign up to the service i think when netflix excuse me when apple gets to a hundred million subscribers, um, and maybe looks into advertising. I think maybe then they have a conversation about, oh, are we, you know, are are there people who are trying to share their Apple ID passwords? But probably not, because to your exact point, like nobody's going to share it with all their credit cards on. It, especially as Apple rolls out like all the ID stuff, like the government IDs. Like it's just yeah, you can't. not going to be a thing that happens. You'd have to create, so, but, but I think a throwaway and have everybody use the web. Which people aren't going to want to do on it's a lot multiple of work. levels. I think people it's are, too much work. Yeah, it's too much work. And and I I think also it's a non-starter at this point. And again, just remember, like every time that we we talked about this with Netflix, right? Like every time we talk about oh, Netflix is cracking down on on password sharing, they're going to lose all these customers. They might lose like a percent of people. Like I I mean literally like one percent of people who are currently paying for Netflix and are kind of like oh well if you know my kids can't watch it or jason's talked about this right like if my kids can't watch it like i don't really use it i'll just cancel it but the vast majority of people who are like i'm just not gonna use netflix are currently not paying for netflix and so for netflix right. it doesn't matter it, it, it is like exactly. okay like we're not losing anything with you they lose engagement and so from the ad side there's a concern about that but from a subscriber side their argument is like well if we make a decent show every single two weeks or whatever those people will sign up for a discounted exactly. price. Like, we'll, that, we'll figure that out. Your, and so the, I, there, there's no downside because they're not paying. And the upside is that some of them will pay. And then and that's. And so I think yeah. Apple's in the same boat, right? Apple's bigger issue is not the Apple ID thing. It's actually a great thing that, that they've implemented. In ter- I mean, be, before even Apple TV Plus, their bigger concern is like there's not enough to keep people paying or not enough to get them to sign up. Yeah. And like, that's a bigger concern. And this is why you see Apple doing things like the like um, granting you free trials or free money months when you buy an iphone or things like that like that's their that's their strategy is to get people to sample apple tv plus through some other means rather than it being you know share this with a friend and like if they look if they felt like this was the thing that unlocked their service they would create a a thing where you could very easily create a link to share three months or a month or whatever with a friend right like subscribers could just gift or, or share. We had another letter that I didn't get to, which was can, why, they should make it easier for you to gift a subscription to a friend, which I also agree with. Like that idea, we get on these family uh, chats or uh, or Zooms with, with my wife's family and recommend movies and TV shows. And it always is like, where is that? Oh, it, that's a service I don't have. And like, I, I do think that there's a path down, down the road here where they'll realize there's incremental revenue to be made from, you know, saying sign up for this as a trial or I'm going to gift you i'm going to pay or i get granted a certain number of gifts to give you a month uh so that you can watch this thing and then and then from the services standpoint it's like and then we can try to convert them and keep them you're starting to see that in things like the web where more uh newspapers with paywalls are now building technology to allow a certain number of shares from subscribers to people who are non-subscribers so that they can get their family to read or their friends to read the the content that's behind the paywall 
with the idea toward, you know, again, building brand value and building the potential to convert them into a paid subscriber down the road. So, you know, right. it, but but I, I think Apple hasn't gone too far down that path because that's that's not really their their issue. And they're also not playing that game. In fact, I would argue that part of the strategy of Apple TV Plus existing is that Apple wants more people to make Apple IDs. Right. They want more people in the ecosystem, more people making an Apple ID with a credit card linked to it so that they can then start to spread their tendrils like they do, because that's what Apple's business model is. So they 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 don't they really don't want you sharing. That's not the point. The point is you got to make your own Apple ID. Yeah. Huh, fascinating though. I love that idea because I, I do think I'm sure it is a factor. I'm sure there is much less password sharing on Apple TV Plus than any other sharing platform because I mean uh, Amazon maybe right could for the same reason like it's linked to all of the and you can make purchases and it's like okay I can't give you my Amazon ID either um, because it's something else and that's that's uh so that's what Netflix needs to do obviously is create a much a big ecosystem of purchases around their Netflix account so that you can't share it. Uh, all right. We yeah. will, I will be back in two weeks. Julia will not be back in two weeks. She is going to be on vacation and it's a real vacation. So that's awesome. Uh, but please send in your feedback by going to downstreamfeedback.com. Uh, love to your mothers. We love hearing from you. Um, and you can find Julia at loudmouth Julia on Twitter. Uh, and at paradanalytics.com and she's got a weekly column at puck.news and they won't let her take the vacation so she'll be writing there from beautiful venues around the world as she writes her column uh and you can find me at sixcollars.com and elsewhere here at relay fm and the incomparable.com and that's it julia have a great time off and thanks uh, friend i'll see you back here in a month I'll see ya and we and when we record it'll actually be that time. It won't just be yesterday. Our time traveling we will come we will, we will finish time traveling. But we'll, but I'll be back in in 2 weeks with another uh, a special guest who is yet undetermined. Uh, <laughs> have a great vacation, Julia. Bye guys.